Hello, this is Natalie Wright, Product Manager at Breckenridge, and welcome to the Breckenridge Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Adam Stern, Breckenridge's Director of Municipal Credit Research, and we are going to discuss the election and its impact on the municipal bond markets. Adam, nice to have you back. Thanks for having me. So it's been one week since the elections. What does Trump's rise and the Republican victory overall mean for the muni market, especially municipal credit? You know, the election, I think the important thing for folks to keep in mind, it creates some new risks and possibly some opportunities for investors. You know, the election, it may impact credit in a, in a number of different ways. And I'm actually glad you mentioned the uh, the Republican victory more generally, because, you know, this is really, it's not all about the president-elect. The, the material difference here for the muni market is really that the Republicans had a sweep. So the same party controls the House, the Senate, and the executive branch. And that means the, the policy spigot, which has really been closed off, you know, for the last six years, uh, is about to be reopened in, in some way, shape, or form. I see. Well, what exactly are some of those risks and opportunities that you're thinking about here? Trump's trade or immigration rhetoric or other items like the Affordable Care Act? There's been a lot of policy issues brought up. The tax exemption infrastructure. What are we thinking about? So, you know, I think mostly the ACA, the Affordable Care Act, the tax exemption, infrastructure, those are sort of the three big areas. But I do think it's important just to address trade and uh, the immigration piece as well. I mean, those were his big, his big campaign themes, you know, and, and before getting into any of that, I think it's really important just to reiterate that right now, you know, everything's really up for grabs. We really don't know what the new president wants uh, as much as we think we do. The, the only thing predictable about Trump so far uh, has really been his unpredictability. He seems to, to be fairly non-ideological and may sort of go with what he thinks the best answer is and may change his view. He doesn't have a voting record. He doesn't have a consistent policy record to speak of. So we really start there before anything else, just with uncertainty. I see. So uncertainty is the main thing, and there's so much that's unclear as we look forward and think about some scenarios, which policies do we think could potentially be the most impactful? Yeah, so good. So good. Let me get me back on track there, right? Uh, so why don't I deal with trade immigration first? So trade. So Trump's policy bent is pretty well known. And I think you have to accept as a base case that at least something will be done on trade policy. You know, it's it's a little unclear, like a lot of Trump's policies, uh, specifically what he wants to do. And of course, the Republican Party until this election has been pretty pro-trade party. But, you know, our expectation is that there'll be something to do in terms of policy, which is not a positive for trade, though perhaps not as strong as he'd indicated on the campaign trail. So to the extent that trade flows slow, you know, you, you want to watch transportation holdings, you got to expect some reduction in maybe airport and port cargo activity, possibly. Looking at trucking, uh, motor fuels taxes might be something also to pay attention to. Bond investors, coverage numbers for airports, ports, motor fuels tax back credits, um, and toll roads. You know, those are sectors to look at. But right now, we're not anticipating, you know, huge changes. Okay, I get that. But how big are exports as a percent of GDP? Yeah, so to put some more meat on that, I guess. So U.S. goods exports are about 12% of GDP, but it's lower than that state to state. So if you look at the auto states in particular, uh, Michigan, Kentucky, South Carolina, it's higher than 12%. Uh, Washington state is actually upwards of 18%. That's mostly Boeing. So, you know, if something big was to get done, you, you might see some impacts in the economies in those states. But again, not really something we're anticipating uh, any huge change there. 
Okay, and I know that immigration reform was one of the primary themes of the campaign. What can you say there? Yeah, so immigration, I think, you know, you can make a case that there'd be a modest impact on the higher education sector. So, you know, uh, U.S. colleges and universities just passed in the last year or so uh, the million student mark in terms of foreign students to the U.S. Uh, A lot of those students come so that they can get an H-1B visa at some point and work even if it's a legal status but not a citizenship status in fields where we, you know, technology fields where we have a, a shortage of workers. There's probably some credit negative there for the higher education sector. Uh, Trump has said he wants to reduce incentives to hire H-1B visa workers. So that's something to watch as well. Okay. And what about the Affordable Care Act? I know that's something on the docket. Yeah, definitely. I actually think the Affordable Care Act is among the policy prescriptions that we may see come out of Congress the most likely. House Republicans have voted around 50 times to repeal the ACA. Uh, Senate President Mitch McConnell has uh, publicly stated that ACA repeal will be at the top of his agenda. And House Speaker uh, Paul Ryan's A Better Way plan uh, outlines how to do it. Last year, they already got a bill to repeal the ACA to the president's desk. He, of course, vetoed it. But importantly, that went through the reconciliation process, which can be complicated. So they sort of have some off-the-shelf language they can use. You know, repeal of the ACA, it's going to be a credit negative for hospitals and probably states as well as maybe even some local governments. Okay, so they've had, in a way, a trial, so to speak, of the repeal. And as we look forward, I know that nonprofit hospitals have been a big focus in markets. What would repeal mean exactly? Yeah, good question. So for hospitals, outright repeal is, you know, going to mean a reversal of uh, Medicaid expansion, uh, quite possibly, and elimination of uh, subsidies offered on the uh, exchanges that were set up under the Affordable Care Act. It might also mean the end of a lot of pay-for-value schemes. So to give you a sense of the scale here, reversing the Medicaid expansion, you know, we push about 15 million insured people off of current coverage uh, relative to what we had before. The ACA and ending the exchange subsidies would push another 5 million on net off the rolls. Fewer insured patients, whether through Medicaid or through the exchanges, you know, means higher bad debt expense for hospitals. I think having said that, to be fair, both Speaker Ryan's plan and Trump's latest statements strongly suggest that any sort of repeal or replace effort is going to be crafted to keep everyone who's gotten insurance in the last few years still on the rolls. So we're unlikely to see a huge wholesale drop in coverage, but maybe the coverage won't be quite as uh, generous. The Republicans' plan involves subsidizing private insurance through a refundable tax credit, and then things would be phased in in terms of the replacement, although that that legislation isn't quite as, as clear. The other thing to think about is, is Medicaid. So the proposals that they've put forth In uh, the House Better Way plan, it includes transforming Medicaid into a block grant program or what's called a per capita grant program. Both of these changes would be enormous uh, to Medicaid. So they'd be the first major changes uh, since the inception of the program in 1965. And while the immediate impact on states and hospitals aren't going to be enormous, it's likely over time we'd see slimmer margins. So under either of these scenarios, a block grant or per capita grant structure, the scheduled growth rate in federal funding is going to be lower than the annual health care cost growth. So this is going to reduce federal liabilities over time and offload more risk onto the states and hospitals to manage more efficiently. Whether that happens or not, I think that's a little up in the air, but it's important to realize here that some states, from a credit perspective, and even counties, pick up some of the tab for Medicaid services. So if states don't change what they do, you know, states, certain states could be impacted over time, especially states that offer more generous Medicaid plans over and above you know, federal minimum requirements. 
The one thing I will say is that while there, there has been some concern about these pay-for-value models of care where the, where the hospital takes on the risk, for example, they insure a bunch of patients and they get paid whatever it is, $100,000 per patient. And as long as they keep the person healthy, they get to reap the rewards of that. And if they end up spending more money than 100000 they lose some money. These pay-for-value models, it looks like those are going to be here to stay. The House Republican plan is, is largely in favor of the concept, and certainly hospitals across the country have spent a lot of money on the IT infrastructure to manage population health and pay-for-value models, and private insurers are moving in that direction anyway. So, you know, that will tend to trim margins going forward, but uh, repeal of the ACA may not have as big of an impact in, in affecting that area of the law. Okay, so that's health care. Could we switch gears and talk about infrastructure? I know that Trump has espoused infrastructure spending as a sort of fill-up for the economy. Any thoughts there? Yeah, definitely. Good question. You know, behind ACA reform, maybe infrastructure policy is the second most likely item to be tackled on the president's agenda in terms of, you know, its relevance to munis. I think from a political standpoint, you know, both parties have expressed significant interest in an infrastructure deal. And they've shown the ability to get something done just in the past couple of years. So they found a way to get a multi-year authorization of the Highway Trust Fund done uh, last year. And now they've got a president who's on board where maybe some other Republican presidents uh, wouldn't be. Trump's plan specifically is new for, for, for muni folks. So it looks like it includes somewhere between $500 billion and a trillion in new funding. He's also mentioned tripling investment in the Clean Water Revolving Loan Program. And of course, he's a builder, so it's not unreasonable to assume that among some of his bluster, he really does want to spend money on, on infrastructure. But, but the details of the plan involve a lot of private seed money uh, and has a private equity feel and is likely would have to involve some public-private partnerships. And it's just unclear exactly how it's going to work. You know, the, the market's challenge with infrastructure right now is that most plans lack a specific funding source, not really new financing mechanisms. But I think there's there's a lot of discussion around this area, and we'll see how it transpires. Okay, so a lot of uncertainty there as well. We haven't talked about the tax exemption yet, and I know that's on the minds of many investors. What do we see there? Yeah, so obviously for investors, the most important thing to be thinking about is is really the tax exemption. You know, curtailment or elimination of the of the exemption is is in my view slightly less likely than some sort of infrastructure bill or even ACA repeal. But some change to the exemption is more probable than not, at least in our view here. You know, first, tax reform and stimulative tax cuts are a major priority of uh, this Congress and the president. So if you look at Speaker Ryan's uh, plan and the House Republicans, they have a plan at, at the ready. It can be passed through budget reconciliation, so they don't really need 60 votes if they don't want to find them. Recall, uh, budget reconciliation has, for better or worse, really become an almost normal way to get legislation out of Congress. It was used during the 2003 Bush tax cuts and to pass the Affordable Care Act. Second, Speaker Ryan's plan and uh, the president-elect's plan, they're about the same in terms of tax brackets. So three sort of brackets, 33% bracket, a 25% bracket, and a 12% bracket. They're both more or less silent on the tax exemption. They would also cut taxes on investment income. So even if they don't intend to touch the exemption directly, lower rates would diminish the value of the exemption for investors. Third, to get the marginal rates down, obviously it would help to curtail or eliminate the exemption itself. So according to the Tax Foundation, the exemption is the eighth largest exemption in the federal tax code and costs the Treasury about $34 billion a year. And, uh, you know, 
my best guess is something may get lost in here. It's probably most likely it's something relatively minor, like disallowing the exemption for truly private activities like a sports stadium or for some uh, economic development projects. But it could be something more like ending the exemption for nonprofit hospitals or private colleges. Okay, well, what should we think about as bondholders? What does this mean for current holdings? Yeah, that's an important question. So current holdings, I think as a base case, if something gets done, are unlikely to be impacted. You know, there was a risk a few years ago when we had fiscal cliff negotiations that bonds that were currently outstanding might become, the interest on those might become taxed. But I think it's important to recall those negotiations were largely about raising revenue uh, and to a lesser extent, you know, relieving income inequality. But the tax reform we're talking about here is an across-the-board cut for everyone in streamlining and making more efficient the current tax code. So there's, there's no reason to really go after bonds currently outstanding, given what the goals are. One caveat to all of this, by the way, is that under both the House Republican plans and the uh, President's tax plan, we're talking about large increases in the federal deficit. The Tax Policy Center, uh, which is a place where I think the scorecards that they use are pretty good, notes that uh, Trump's plan would decrease federal revenues by 6 to $7 trillion, depending on whether you want to use dynamic scoring or not. And um, the question on all this stuff is, you know, how affordable is it? So even if they did do some base broadening or rate cutting, maybe the maybe the brackets are, are different than what they've been talking about. And, you know, when the rubber meets the road, it's always hard to put through a tax plan. Ideologies tend to fall by the wayside pretty, pretty quickly. I can see that with all the impact that it would have on the deficit. Well, we've touched on a lot of things thus far. Are there any other things we're thinking about post-election that might impact credit? Yeah, you know, I think there's some, you know, maybe under the hood risks we're thinking about in terms of federal appointments. And, you know, I think it's also we're thinking about taking stock of what's going on at the state level, too. So recall that the Republicans now control the legislative and executive branches in 24 states. That includes 32 legislatures, up from 14 in 2008. So on the margin, you know, this sort of control is probably meaningful for things like trying to pass the right-to-work laws, instituting 401A programs for uh, new employees as opposed to pensions, possibly, maybe having more charter schools. All of these sort of policy issues do have long-term credit implications. So those are some possible marginal impacts from the election that seem like longer-term items. And I recall you wrote over the summer a piece on populism globally and how that impacted U.S. muni markets. Is there anything populism-related we should be thinking about? What about willingness to pay? And what is a very populist election result? Yeah, I think it's important just to reiterate this point. We've been talking about willingness risk being elevated for quite some time. And over the summer, you know, did put out a piece on populism in the muni market. I think this election, you know, really hits this point home that the, the public and elected leaders, you know, seem willing to throw caution to the wind more often than they have in the past. And uh, when we enter the next recession, it's just common sense in some level to just be a little bit more vigilant of the risk that, you know, some folks may decide to blow up covenants or threaten creditors in unexpected ways. Now, I want to be clear, you know, that being said, high-grade munis, bread and butter, essential service, revenue bonds, and geo bonds, those are unlikely to be <laughs> impacted by this sort of behavior, and that's what we do here at Breckenridge. But it just does provide a little more evidence that this willingness risk is elevated. Okay, thanks so much, Adam. 
Please see Adam's piece on populism, thoughts on modern populism and the muni market, which is currently available on our website. Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. We hope that you found it informative, and we look forward to you joining us next time.